So uh, the last time I delivered a message, I spoke from First uh, Corinthians chapter one, verses one through ten. Uh, that was on a Wednesday night, so I decided to continue to expose that letter. Uh, thinking back to why I chose that portion of Scripture, I realized that um, God had given me a, a very clear conviction about unity. Uh, as most of you know, before God showed me how wretched I am, I broke a very important union, uh, which is one of a parent and a child, in my case, a father and a daughter. So needless to say, I'm not an authority by any stretch of the imagination on the topic of unity. I'm definitely preaching to myself. So I want to review verses 1 through 10 with you tonight and also move a little forward to discuss um, uh, verses 11 and 15. Uh, In this letter, Paul wrote to the Corinthians. So uh, let's read our passage, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 15. Paul writes, Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and sustenance our brother, to the church of God which is in Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as a testimony concerning Christ was confirming you, so that you are not lacking any in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say that you were baptized in my name. Ask you that uh, before I lead us in prayer, that you take a few seconds and pray for me for the hand of the word, and then I'll lead us in prayer. Father, it's um, it's hard to stand in front of you, the, uh, all-knowing, all-powerful God, and handle your word. Um, but you gave it to us so we can study it, so we can learn, so we might be enriched. So I pray that you be with us, that where there needs to be understanding, you give it to us, where there needs to be application, that you give it to us, where we need to meditate, you might help us do so, and that everything else you might burn and toss it from us. Thank you for this opportunity, and please be with us. 
I pray this in your powerful name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to look at four main sections um, in this passage. The first two sections we'll look at as a review. Uh, first one, uh, the reminder, would be verses 1 through 9. Second one would be the requirement in verse 10. Third one would be the report in verse 11. And the fourth and last one would be the rebuke, verses 12 through 15. Last time I gave a short background as to what Corinth must have been like at that time. Most of you know that Corinth became a very popular spot, primarily because of all the commercial traffic. Uh, boats used, used to be dragged across the little isthmus, uh, so they didn't have to make the treacherous trip around, um, and that brought a lot of people of different backgrounds, and a lot of uh, gross and, and morally corrupt practices occupied the area. And that's uh, where Paul founded one of the churches on his second missionary journey. After over a year of ministering there, uh, Paul was brought to a Roman tribunal. And basically, the case was dismissed. So it was shortly after he left to go to Ephesus, uh, where is it uh, most likely where he wrote this letter. So let's look at the first section, the reminder. Let's read uh, verses 1 through 3. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and sustenance our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place, on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the first three verses of this letter, we read that Paul states is uh, identity, his calling, and his apostolic authority. This introduction not only creates a genuine authorship, but also, and most importantly, a genuine authority of the highest kind. We know uh, by not only this letter, but by the accounts of his own conversion in Acts, that Paul was literally called by God to be an apostle, and ultimately founding churches such as the Church of Corinth. Then we see in uh, verses 2 and 3 that he directs the message to the saints of the church. The word saints indicates those have been set apart and accredited with Christ's holiness, which is the meaning of the Greek word uh, holy one. After his greeting, we discuss that Paul set the stage to, uh, for the appeal he's about to make to the Corinthian church. He gives thanks to God, but these statements also serve as a great reminder to the Corinthians. So let's read verses 4 uh, through 9. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirming you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting, awaiting eagerly, the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We can separate eight reminders in this verses through Paul's thankfulness. The first reminder he gives us for is the grace of God, or he who revealed God's ultimate act of grace given through him, Christ Jesus, by their salvation. 
As we read in verse 4, the reminder is that it was given to the saints in Christ Jesus. The second one is the word, or how he explained it in verse 5, the enrichment believers obtained through him, Christ, revealed through speech and knowledge. The reminder is that you, the body of saints, were enriched in him. Number three, we read in verse 6, the confirmation of Christ's testimony through the saints. That is, the believer and their completeness, since they received God's grace through salvation. The reminder is that Christ's testimony was confirmed in you, the saints. Then, in the first part of verse 7, is the fourth reminder. That you, the church body, is not lacking in any gift. That is, as a whole. We later know that in chapter 12, he makes it clear the different saints might have different gifts. So he's speaking to the entire church body. Then in the second part of verse 7, we see number 5, which is the saint's eagerness for the revelation. Or as saints, that they should be eager for the coming of Jesus and the full glory of his second coming. We then see number 6 in verse 8, the reminder that Christ will confirm you, the saints, blameless to the end. That day of the Lord, their complete redemption. No longer the already, not yet, but rather all done. The seventh reminder is in the first part of verse 9, and that is, God is faithful. And the last reminder, which is perfectly left for last, is that the body of saints is called into fellowship with their Lord Jesus Christ. These are all the things that uh, Paul was thankful for and strong reminders for the Corinthian church body. And as I say, the last reminder touch on the very subject that he's about to discuss next, fellowship, as we look at our next part on verse 10. Let's read verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, why do I say that this is a requirement, yet Paul uses the word exhort or appeal in other translations? Well, just because Paul is pleading for them to remain united does not take away their necessity or requirement to remain united. They simply cannot be one true church body if they continue to separate themselves. Again, he later expresses the idea of a functioning body as a church in great detail in chapter 12. We also pointed out that Paul does not only plead that there would be no divisions, but that they agree that there should be no divisions, that they agree that in the church body there ought to be unity, unlike anywhere else in, in Corinth. The word used here for division in the original language is where we get the word schism. So they were to have no schisms or dissensions between them in the church body, and they needed to realize that and to agree to it. We explained that Paul was not saying this because they were not complete. That was not the case with the saints of Corinth or any saint. He states in verse 7 that they were are not lacking in any gift. And back in verse 5, he states that they were enriched with knowledge and speech through Christ. We explore that the term used here speaks of 
mending or such things as nets and uh, torn garments. So as believers, they were complete. But there was one thing that was broken or torn in their church. That was their fellowship. We use the illustration of a fisherman that realizes that his net has a hole in it and goes to the store and goes back to return it. He doesn't say, my net is incomplete or is not complete. He says, my net is broken. So the way that we need to look at this statement is, using that example, is that a fisherman cannot be complete with a broken net, and so as a church cannot be complete with a broken fellowship. That's what we discussed last time. So that brings us to the next portion of the letter we will look at tonight on verse 11, and that is the report. Paul, Paul here explains why he's making this appeal to them. It reads, For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Paul makes a very clear explanation of what is happening. He does not leave any doubt, nor does he generalize the problem by using a term like idolatry or pride or any other such as in this and other letters he wrote to the other churches. First, he explained how he knows there is a problem. In verse 11, it says, I was informed. All those translations state it was reported or declared to him. In other words, someone else other than God, told him there was a problem. Then he makes it very clear who he is speaking to. My brethren, as he first stated in the beginning of the letter in verse 2, the saints by calling and those sanctified by Christ. When I uh, study this portion uh, in verse 11, one immediate question came to my mind. Isn't that one of the most common causes of strife or separation in a church. Somebody told somebody else something about someone. So my observation question was, why would Paul say this to a church that is having unity problems? Well, he was clear as to who informed him, Chloe's people. We can gather by the fact that he mentioned specifically the group that informed him that is both the statement of evidence or proof and that the source is reliable. There is, however, some anonymity to how he bundles where the information comes from, her people. There are different disputes in commentaries, as I can see, that whether they were family members or slaves. But given the fact that they were more than one, it's hard to point out one person in particular other than Chloe. And it does not point out if she was part of the group, or if she was the actual whistleblower, but that it was her people. But the fact that they were mentioned helped us determine that they were reputable enough for Paul to be certain that the information given was true. So Paul makes a point as the validity to his source, and then he makes the first specific mention of what exactly was happening in Corinth at the end of verse 11. There are quarrels among you, uh, contentions, strives, wrangling. Um, I have to say, I've always been curious of how the uh, setting of, of the reading of these letters was in the, uh, at that time when they were reading uh, Paul's letters. Uh, I try to imagine what it must have been like 
And I think in this portion, I probably be, would have been one of those gulp moments where I'm listening to uh, what's happening, and then all of a sudden, okay, that's changing uh, a little bit here. Um, so I imagine this wonder if you can imagine you're at work, your children are at home, and Chloe is the babysitter. Chloe gives you a call and says, uh, kid number one, kid number two, kid number three, they were fighting, they broke some stuff, and there's trouble. You're like, okay, so drive home, you see your children, you know you love them, you say, children, you're, you're the light of my life. You, I, I love you, you're just a gift from God. I, I, I just, I love you so much, I don't know how to describe it, you, you're, you're just amazing, I just... I just appeal to you that you just stay together, that you, you think alike, that, that you, you, you stay together as a family. Because Chloe told me, and that's, that's that gold moment. You can imagine their face when you would say that. So I think my conscience would betray me at that moment. But again, he doesn't generalize the information. He doesn't leave it to the imagination of the Corinthians, so that's what we look at in our last section. The rebuke. So let's read again verses 12 through 15. Now I mean this, that each of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. So Paul specifies exactly what they were doing in a very direct way by writing in verse 12, Now this is what I mean. This is exactly what you're doing. Each of you is saying, I am a Paul, or I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos, and I follow Sipha, or I follow Christ. This is right after that gulp moment we just talked about. This is the second thing that I would have probably done after this happened. I would probably try to allocate which group I was from. Okay, okay, where am I? Am I of Paul, Apollos, Cephas? And the truth is, if I would have been with either the Paul, the Apollos, or the Cephas, I probably would have been really quiet, really still, I think I'm in trouble. However, if I would have been in the I am of Christ group, my chin was probably pretty high. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm okay. Probably looked at the Paulettes and the Apollonians and, and see, waiting for their rebuke. But notice Paul does not make a distinction between the groups. Furthermore, we know who the audience was. We know these are Christians, his brethren, the church saints, sanctifying Christ. And we know who these men were. Uh, Paul, we know by this and, 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 and Acts, he was called by God. Apollos. Let's turn to Acts uh, 18, 24 to 26 real quick. It says in Acts 24, Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, 
he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John, and he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So we know even Apollos, if, if there was some holes in his game, they filled them up. They, they taught him. So we know he was preaching Christ and him crucified. We know Paul the same. And uh, in Acts 2, you don't have to go there, but you can read Cephas or Peter's sermon. He, he also taught Christ and him crucified. So to follow this man was not to follow the wrong teaching. So Paul is not saying do not follow the wrong teachers or the wrong teaching. He was saying do not divide yourselves and agree to it as he, as he states in verse 10. But again, what about the I am of Christ group? Here's another observation question. Can Christians be divisive with a statement like, I am of Christ? Yes, we can. Not only can we be divisive, but we can be quarrelsome. That is the trap the Corinthians fell into. And that's the trap that we often fall into. Listen to the statements. I am of John MacArthur. I am of John Piper. I am of Paul Washer. I am of Calvin. I am of Augustine. I am of Luther. I am of Spurgeon. I am of non-denominational. I am of Southern Baptist. I am of ESB. I am of King James. I am of Congregation-led. I am of Elder-led. I am of hymns. I am contemporary. I am of Abraham's covenant. I am of Christ's covenant. I am of premillennium. I am of amillennium. I am of his position. I am of topical. I am of apologetic. I am of systematic. I am of fill the blank. So there, there is a good argument for all these names and terms. There is a good arming, uh, argument for which is the best translation, the best form of worship. Just as any of these Corinthian church groups would have a great argument as to which preacher was better. Maybe they had certain doctrines or concepts, perhaps even scriptures in mind. But while they quarrel about it, they divided the church. I even submit to you that the I am of Christ group is twice as wrong since they were using Christ's name to be quarrelsome. And I say that because the very next thing that Paul says in verse 13 has Christ being divided. If the Paul of the Apollos of the Cephas group were convicted by this point, I think this is where the I am of Christ group would have been really convicted. So Paul makes three rhetorical questions, one just as important as the other. Let's look at the first question in uh, verse 13. Has Christ been divided? When I uh, first meditated on the question, I asked myself if this was some sort of allusion to the triune God, but none of the commentaries alluded to that. But I did find another uh, portion of Scripture where the word divided in the original language is also used. That is an account shown in the Gospel of Matthew. So let's read uh, Matthew 12, verses 22 to 26. I have it up. The demon, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus. And he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. 
All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is, less, is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? We can see in that account and in this question that the division implied here is not a good one. Christ surely has many attributes. We know he's a personal savior. He has saved many Christians and will save many Christians. We know he is omnipresent. And we know that he is a triune God. So there must be some sort of distribution of his power or grace. Therefore, we know that the division implied here by Paul in his rhetorical question is one that works against Christ. Then in the second question, Paul puts himself at the footstool of the problem by including himself in the second rhetorical question. He asks, Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Notice that he doesn't use uh, Apollos or Peter to ask the question. I think that the great thing about this question is that with the use of his own name, Paul actually removes himself from the rebuke. That is, if at any point a Corinthian might have thought in this moment, wow, Paul is really upset with us. Now, Paul lowers his authority he has under Christ and lifts up his crucifixion for the saints of Corinth. And he does this again in the third question um, when he asks, or will you baptize in the name of Paul? Further removing himself from the message by mentioning the act of baptism and what it's supposed to symbolize. He continues to use it, and in contrast, he finishes his rebuke the same way he started his letter when we saw in the first section. First, he thanks God for eight different acts of grace, and now he thanks God as a statement of rebuke when he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you uh, except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say that you were baptized in my name. It says in Acts 18.8 that Crispus was the leader of the synagogue in Corinth, and in Acts 19.29, it says that Gaius from Derby was one of Paul's companions from Macedonia. Probably a witness to God's miracles performed through Paul, uh, like in Acts 19 and, and verse 12. It speaks about when people were taking Paul's handkerchiefs or aprons and taking them to the sick, and they would be healed. If there was a reason to pledge allegiance to Paul, this was it. However, by Paul explaining that he is glad to have only baptized these two men, so that no one would say that they were baptizing his name, we could say that implies that the, neither Crispus or Gaius were pledging allegiance to him. And if that's the case, I think this was a cause of hope to those listening, because they knew that there was this man that indeed could appeal the correct concept of unity, and they could provide guidance. So Paul once again reminds the Corinthian church of three essential truths about their Christianity. The holiness of God through the first question, the grace of God to have given them eternal life through Jesus' death through the second questions, and uh, last, the redemption of their sins through the works 
of the one and only God-man, Jesus Christ. So Paul later writes to the Corinthians about um, immoralities and sinful acts in the church in this letter. However, the first thing he pleased them not to do is not to have divisions, even using the name of Christ. So I think that should give us a good sense of how important it is for us to be united in fellowship under Christ. That's what we are called to do. And that's all I have. Let's pray. Father, as I said, uh, it's hard to stand in front of you, an all-knowing, all-powerful God, and, and handle your word. Uh, I praise you for this opportunity. I praise you for this church. And I ask, you know as God, you, you know what we do. You know the trials that we have. You know how we pursue to know you, to be close to you. Uh, you know what we go through each day. You know the things that we have and the things that we don't. So we ask of you, Lord, to keep us united. Lord, we ask that if we have our differences, that you can make those strengths and not weaknesses, that we can come upon you and, and act like the functioning body that Paul speaks. Um, we just want that. We, we're so gracious for what you provided for us through your son. Uh, we just want to glorify you. Again, thank you. We pray that we can glorify you this week. Um, and thank you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.